Hey, I'm Andy, and I started Harry's, the shaving company that's fixing shaving. Here's why some of our customers choose Harry's. The blades are about $2 each. I get a nice, clean shave every time. The blades stay sharp for plenty of shaves. Thanks, guys. And for everyone else, give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter easy at checkout. That's harrys.com, code easy. We are back. Good afternoon. Happy Friday. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy in talk. We are glad to have with us today Hope Fry. Hope is an internationally recognized immigration lawyer focused on disadvantaged populations, especially women and children. She's the co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. They're a nonprofit focused on children who are or were in immigration detention in CBB jails. ORR shelters or ICE family detention facilities. Their mission spans the child's experience with the goal of providing continuity of care. They are not only a nonprofit, uh, they are the only nonprofit with a medical and legal program. Hope is active in projects with the Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law, the CHRCL. She's testified before the House and Senate about the conditions of confinement and treatment of children held in CPB facilities at the border. And uh, I consider her kind of famous for something, which is uh, finding out that a child at the age of seven was caring for another child younger than themselves. More than a pleasure to have somebody who does such great work that I admire greatly, Hope Fry. Hope, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us and taking the time. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Leslie. It's a pleasure to talk about this with you. You know, there are so many reports that keep coming out, and a new report, it would seem the latest report, uh, is that the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, the Office of Inspector General, the OIG, found that the Trump administration's policies that were changed in 2018 exacerbated the needs of children, children who were not uh, accompanied, uh, children who were taken from their parents, and it exacerbated specifically the mental health needs uh, while in custody of we, the United States of America. Um, These children are unaccompanied immigrants. Uh, this, This study shows they're overwhelmingly uh, asylum seekers, overwhelmingly coming from the Central American region in those countries. Um, Should anyone be surprised, hoped, that there were two particular policies which the Office of Inspector General found that separating children from their parents and prolonging the time children are in custody is specifically especially harmful to the children's mental health? To me, that's just common sense. I mean, I'm a mom of two, but I don't think you need to have kids to even figure that out. No, you know, Leslie, one of the interesting things about this report, the administration um, thing says that people just come here willy-nilly to take advantage of the United States uh, and that they're not legitimate asylum seekers. And this report uh, interviewed many clinicians. Those are the people charged with providing mental health services to children at the shelters where unaccompanied children are kept to see what challenges they face. And the, the, the clinicians themselves in multiple cases reported that children had been kidnapped, raped, uh, forced to be members of gangs or drug cartels. Uh, in one case, a medical aide said that the girl had been held in captivity for months, during which time she was tortured, raped, and became pregnant. Um, several clinicians reported uh, seeing, having children having witnessed the murder of mothers, grandmothers, uh, and siblings. 
And so it shouldn't surprise us that these children who come to us already damaged, whom we place in detention, um, taking away basic comforts, having them sleep on the concrete, in cages, with the light on 24 hours a day, in the freezing cold, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that they have serious mental health problems and that the long-term prognosis for their mental health outcomes are not very good. Um, one of the things that this report specifically found is that children who have been separated from their parents are in shambles. Um, every single one is terrified and that the people who are charged with taking care of them are seen as the enemy. And these are quotes from clinicians. You know, I, I'm, I'm still um, reeling from how sickening and horrifying what you explained was. When, when we think about children coming here, if they're not with family members or taken from family members or even with family members, often they're fleeing because the family member is trying to protect them uh, from something that has happened or from something happening, uh, terrible, catastrophic, uh, murder, rape, uh, being forced into a drug cartel, et cetera, uh, starvation, uh, lack of shelter and lack of opportunity, uh, not able to provide what a child needs. Um, mental health professionals – and policymakers have known, right? I mean, this is nothing new. Haven't they known for years that children, specifically refugee children, are likely to have experienced traumas that challenge their mental health before they reach the border? And then when they come into the United States, um, you know, uh, saying, hey, look, I'm seeking asylum. Um, these children all already have PTSD. What are we doing by adding to that PTSD, anxiety, depression, uh, behaviors that have uh, externalized? Um, you know, like I said, uh, circling back in Central America, it has been proven that many of these children and their families were fleeing violence, uh, that they were victims of deprivation of one form or another in their home countries. Um, these children, before they go into those cages, are at high risk of developing mental disorders. Am I correct in that? Absolutely, you're correct. Um, we did a briefing this week, this very week, in Congress and both the House, uh, members of the House and Senate, um, with famous doctors um, who who came forward to talk about this very issue, the mental health problems, and urging policymakers to craft and pass laws that would protect children and take into account um, the exquisite nature of the trauma, the serious nature of the trauma with which they come here, and the way we. Uh, intensely exacerbated by our practices and policies. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with Hope Fry right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall, and we are back with our guest, Hope Fry, internationally recognized immigration lawyer who's focused on disadvantaged populations, especially women and children, co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline, a nonprofit focused on children who are or were in immigration detention in CBP jails, ORR shelters, or ICE family detention facilities. Uh, she is also active in projects with the Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law. Hope, thank you for holding and uh, welcome back. Um, this information, not only common sense, the reports that have come out and what we said right before the break, which is that this was knowledge for years by mental health professionals, despite knowing that it would cause lasting harm, the Trump administration still took children from their parents. 
In July 2018, Jonathan White, the former deputy director of children's programs in the HHS Office of Refugee Resettlement, testified to Congress that he had warned administration officials early in the discussions to ramp up zero tolerance toward asylum seekers about the harm such policies pose to children. He argued that the separation of children from parents entails, quote, significant risk of harm to children, as well as, quote, psychological injury, and the administration officials overruled him and went ahead. What does this say to you about this administration and this policy and doing and going and, and proceeding forward with this policy, knowing this information? Leslie, the administration is engaged in a war on children. All of the policies, every one of them, all of the regulations and rules that this administration has put into place are designed to crucify children, um, to damage their health, their uh, mental health, and their physical health. There's a cow disregard for human rights and for the very lives of the children. Um, the, the damage that's done is hard to understand. When I led groups to the Border Patrol facilities in June, we saw children who'd been separated. A six-year-old boy came in to see us, and when he was asked, did you travel with anyone, he burst into tears and cried inconsolably for an hour. Uh, a little girl came in, and she turned in circles for the entire time she was with us, saying over and over, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Um, I found a 17-year-old Guatemalan, indigenous Guatemalan girl, crippled up from a botched C-section she'd had just before she came into America, holding a bundle of rags. And when I opened those rags, I found there the teeny, tiny head of a premature baby. They had been locked in CBP hell for seven days at that point. It took me two days and a big media campaign to get them out of there and to an ORR shelter. I think these uh, few tiny examples, I have hundreds of hours of examples I could give you, um, speak volumes to, the, to the, the, the theme that underlies all of the immigration policies of the Trump administration, not just towards children, but especially towards children. The theme is just cruelty. If it's cruel, they're all for it. Uh, you know, I have um, a great deal of disdain for this president and this administration, but, but this is this is just a new level of heartlessness. Um, th- this is truly inhumane. And, and we as a nation should not be participating in this. And, and, and this, honestly, this is not political. I mean, these are children. I'm, I'm going to tell you something. When you, when you talk about, when you're telling your stories, um, my, and, and my producer remembers this, Mark, uh, we were in different places this summer. Buffalo, New York is one of them. And uh, my producer, Mark Grimaldi, and his wife and my husband and I went to a concert and we had our kids with us because we don't have a sitter on vacation. And uh, we thought it would be fun, concert in the park, and there was a mosh pit. And there was one guy who was really strung out on drugs and he pushed another guy. I didn't push my son, didn't push anybody in our party. And my son was shell-shocked, hid behind my husband, was shaking, was crying, crying for hours. My son is 12 and a very adjusted child, very loved child, hasn't been through anything like these children. And it took me hours to console him. And he had, and he saw, thought he saw the guy later on the street for a day or two. He had like nightmares about, and you know, poor parenting choice. Okay. Not getting not old enough to go to a, you know, summer uh, rock concert, but, 
I, I, I can't even imagine just as a parent witnessing um, a child shaking and crying similar to what you describe, but from no way the deep boundaries of the pain that these children um, are I- experiencing. Um, so let, let's talk about policy, the policy of family separation. Is it happening less frequently now? I mean, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, reported that 911 children were taken from their asylum-seeking parents uh, in the year after the June 26, 2018 court order to stop the practice. 30 children whom DHS took from their parents during the peak of the policy in 2018 still are separated from their parents. So let's break it down. Is this policy happening less? Are there still hundreds, thousands, if not how many children that have not been uh, put with their parents? And is the practice still there at all? And if so, why? Uh, Leslie, let's step back and look at what separation of children means. Um, we, we learned about this as the public because of zero tolerance and the separation of children from parents. But there is a broader separation that has gone on all the time that's particularly egregious now. The government considers family, mother, father, or legal guardian, and legal guardian has to be court-ordered. So you live all your life with grandma, and we know that in Central America and Latinx cultures, the family is big, it's extended, and your aunt may be to you just like your mother. But let's take the example. You live all your life with your grandmother, you and your sister, and she brings you to the United States, and right away at Border Patrol, you're thrown into that cage, maybe with your sister, without, and grandma is separated from you, but grandma is the only parent you ever knew. And that practice goes on all the time and has gone on. It doesn't take into account how people live in other cultures. All right, so that, we don't have any numbers on that, and I will tell you that I, the, 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 the children I saw who had been ripped from lifelong primary caretakers that aren't part of the Trump family separation that everybody knows about in the news, um, the damage is, is, is horrendous. Um, now, let's talk about separation of children from their parents. Yes, it's still going on. We saw lots of children in June when this policy is supposedly ended. We saw lots of children, small children, small, small children, two years old, three years old, five years old, stripped from their parents. A little boy sitting in front of me, he's six, he's tiny, tiny, he's filthy because he's come from Guatemala all the way, traveling with his mommy. He hasn't been allowed to bathe. There's no soap and water in Border Patrol. He's been there six days. He sits across from me. He is mute. He has no affect. His face is filthy, and all I can see are the tear tracks down his face as he sits there mute, separated from his mommy. It's, as I say, cruel, and it's still going on, and we don't have numbers on it. You know, they're not keeping numbers because the position of the administration is that they aren't separating, so they're not counting it, and uh, uh, and they separate families. Although, let me tell you that the, the Office of Refugee Resettlement Shelters, where unaccompanied children go, at Homestead, which was this big uh, influx shelter in Florida, I know that they were tracking in their own database children that they received who were separated. Now, I don't know if this was a practice across the OR shelters, but if it was, there are some current statistics uh, and the numbers available about children who are separated from their parents. 
I want to ask you, when you talk about these children, and, and we know that resources um, are lacking uh, in that area specifically, how are clinicians taking care of children? Um, and I also want to talk about lack of stability. Um, my, I have two children. My eldest is adopted. And one of the things that was important to me is that when my husband and I needed a nanny to be part of our village, because as working professionals, you need a village. It does take a village, family, friends, et cetera. Um, it was very important to us that our nanny stay with us a long time so that there wouldn't be a lot of changes. And, and I say that because I would imagine that these kids, you know, could become attached to uh, one detention uh, center staff member or worker. And then when that person's shift ends, they leave. And they already feel like their parents abandoned them. Other adults have abandoned them. So could you speak to these two, which is the um, volume of employees or the volume of children being treated by employees, uh, medical staff, and, and then in addition to that, the uh, you know uh, lack of stability in these children's lives with the revolving staff members? Well, I would say that in all the hundreds of children that I've met with, I've never met a child who was attached to any particular shelter worker at all, which is in itself an interesting thing. Um, the required ratio of caseworker, which are the, the people who manage the release, and uh uh, and people that, that, who take care of the children on a daily basis is one to eight. Uh, and children are marched in pods of one to eight. There's no privacy. They're taken in, you know, these little groups everywhere they go. There, there are these eyes on at all times. They call it policy. So children have to be looked at at all times. Now, clinicians who are responsible for mental health are supposed to be one clinician to every 10 children. At Tornillo, the tent city in uh, El Paso, Texas, last fall before it closed, the ratio was 1 to 100. This OIG report found that uh, in many places it's 1 to 25. Now, how do you take children whom, as you properly observed, are terribly damaged before they come by the journey here and by the deplorable treatment of the United States government towards them? How do you begin to address their mental health issues when <laughs> – you know, one clinician is trying to treat 25 children. I mean, it's just uh, impossible. So I would say that in terms of real stability in the detention centers, they don't have it. All of the children are anxious about when they're going to be released. They have no information about it or little information. Um, they see children going, who came after them, going before them. They don't understand why. The clinicians report that this is the single biggest concern of children. I saw, we saw 60 children in Tornillo. I saw them, I was in Tornillo seven days in November. Every child, Every child wanted to talk about that first thing, and every child asked me, can you help me go to my dad? Can you help me go to my mom uh, or my grandmother? So, you know, the, the situation at the shelter is, is simply abnormal. Um, there, there are many practices and policies there that are destabilizing to children, and that if we saw them in our conventional society would be actional criminal violations. For example, and this is the one that affects me the most, um, 
there is a no touching policy. And this means that if there are two sisters detained together and one of them has a friendship bracelet, the other one can't put the bracelet on her sister. That's an unauthorized touching. A 13-year-old girl giggling with her friend, they can't braid each other's hair. Um, in shelters where there are small kids, you can't, me, when I go in, I can't, I am not supposed to, I am forbidden from picking up and touching that child. Now, can you imagine a child, I've seen children detained over a year, where they aren't touched in that entire time. Leslie, can you imagine not touching your child many, many times when you come home from work? Uh, I touch my daughter, my grandchildren all the time. And the evidence is evidence-based care says that children need touching and not touching children in and of themselves is damaging to them. So, you know, there's a whole constellation of things that we need to look at when we look at how children feel when we detain them, what their experience is, and more importantly, what the long-term damage is to them. It's really consequential. It's really severe. I know that prior to being on the show today, you had a great conversation with my executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, and uh, he and I were talking um, ahead of the show. Um, Isn't it a massive conflict of interest that these detention camps are for-profit businesses? Yes. I mean, the, the, the rules that govern the detention of children require... There's a presumption that children should be released, and they require the expeditious release of children. Um, but let's think about how uh, for-profit detention centers or our shelters. Now, we're not talking about uh, uh, the Customs and Border Protection cages. We're talking about where the children are supposed to go, where there's actual care provided. These are almost all run by for-profits who are paid per child per night. So if you have expeditious release, there is not a consistent flow of children. Children are placed all around the country. They're not necessarily going to come to you on a given day. There may not be that many children released from Border Patrol. I mean, it's uncertain. So if you are for profit and you've got to have a bottom line and you're accounting, you're accountable to executives and a board of directors, what's your incentive to release children? And I want to give an example. I mean, I, we're not even getting to mental health. Healthcare. Uh, what what's the incentive to properly staff the clinical staff? It's not. And one of the things that another OIG report uh, found that was just issued is that the lack of clinicians that's available there to be hired. There are a number of factors, but chief among them are low salaries and bad working conditions. Well, salary and working condition is what your employer gives you. So kids aren't getting mental health care in part because the for-profits are not willing uh, to compensate the, the people and to make a decent decent working condition. Um, there is a con- there's a huge conflict of interest. And I, uh, the statistics show that in the private prison business, and I would characterize this myself, uh, even though shelters are not prisons, and I don't want to uh, tell you that they look like that because they don't, but in my view, it's part of the constellation of for-profit prisons. Unaccompanied children are the hottest ticket in terms of money you can make. There's a big pitching that's happening on the backs of unaccompanied uh, and also accompanied family detention on, on both categories of children. It's a huge 
large monetized industry. Um, and I think the for-profit nature is we should never have for-profit uh, uh, shelters. And Congress has an absolute duty to end that practice and to forbid the extension uh, of contracts with these behemoth groups that that are making uh, making money. You've been awesome. We've just talked about um, uh, during the break how we'd like to have you back on again because the hour just flew. Thank you for being with us. Uh, that is Hope Fry, internationally recognized immigration lawyer, active in projects with the Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law. Uh, she's co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. Check out their website, projectlifeline.us. Twitter, Follow them at Proj Lifeline, P-R-O-J-L-I-F-E-L-I-N-E. From the kids to Aunt Sue, keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Learn more about gig-speed internet or other popular plans. With Xfinity, you'll enjoy faster downloads and a better streaming experience. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.